Good morning. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hey, I know you passed a lot of great churches in order to get to St. Mark's today. I'm glad you're here. I pray God will honor our gathering together in Christian community to bless us and speak to us today. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we began a new sermon series. We're calling it Unbreakable Love. And our passage of scripture for today is this text from Genesis chapter 17, select verses. And the title of the sermon this morning is Drawn to Barrenness. Drawn to Barrenness. Now, I probably don't have to tell you uh, about stone soup. If you have been a part of St. Mark's for any period of time, you know all about stone soup. If for no other reason than because of the St. Mark's preschool. You see, every November, the preschool children, with a lot of help from the adults, I'm guessing put on a Thanksgiving feast that features stone soup. And they invite all of their family and friends to come and to enjoy a nice bowl of stone soup with them. Uh, a, few week, uh, a, few while, a little while ago, I asked Sherry Gillum, uh, who has recently retired from our preschool as the director, but she's been around for a long time, probably longer than she would want me to tell you she's been along. But what, what do I care? 36 years she was here. <laughs> she first showed up in 1988, and she says that in 1988, when she arrived at St. Mark's Preschool, they were already celebrating stone soup. So it's been around for a minute here in our church. And yet, despite the fact that it's been a part of St. Mark's for a long time, it certainly did not originate here at St. Mark's. In fact, if you were to go Google the stone soup folktale, what you would discover pretty quickly is that this story has been shared in almost every part of the world and in almost every language in the world it has been around so long and it has been so prevalent everywhere that it's really hard to pinpoint exactly where this folktale originated. Now, in the Portuguese version of the story, there's this traveling monk and he shows up in this small village and the only thing that this monk has got to his name is a backpack and inside the backpack there is an empty pot and there is a ladle. And so this traveling monk begins to go around to people in this little community and ask them for food. And in every instance, he's either completely ignored or he's turned away empty. All he wants is just a piece of bread or, or maybe the scraps from the table and he can't get any food anywhere. And so the traveling monk comes up with an idea. He begins to tell the people in the community that at a particular time, on a particular day, he's going to gather in the center of town and he is going to prepare the best meal ever. 
And it's a meal called stone soup. And he invites them to come. On the appointed day, at the appointed hour, the traveling monk shows up in the center of town. He builds a little fire. He opens up his backpack containing the only two things that he owns. He takes out that empty pot and he places it on the fire that's now burning. He reaches down on the ground. He picks up a stone. He drops it into the pot. He pours water on top of the pot, on top of the stone. And then he takes his ladle out and he begins to stir the water as the crowd begins to gather. And after he's stirred it for a while, he takes that ladle out of the water and he takes a sip and he says, pretty good but not quite ready yet. Which prompted one of the villagers to say, well, why isn't it ready? And the traveling monk said, well, it could use just a pinch of salt and pepper, but I don't seem to have any in my bag. And the villager says, wait just a minute. And the villager runs to his house, and he comes back with salt and pepper. He gives it to the traveling monk. The traveling monk puts it into the concoction and starts to stir again. After he's stirred for a while, he pulls that ladle out again, and he drinks it. And he says, oh, yeah, that definitely helped. It's, 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 it's definitely better. But you know what? The soup would really be so much better if we had some beans, Wait just a second, said another one of those villagers, and he runs off and he grabs some beans from his home, brings it back, puts it in the pot. Same thing, stirring it. Mmm, this tastes better. This ritual, this, this keeps getting repeated. He keeps tasting it, and he said, you know what? This soup is pretty good, but it would be even better if we had some carrots. It would be even better if we had some meat. It would be even better if we had some herbs. It would be even better if we had some onions. It would be even better if we had some potatoes. And every single time the traveling monk said that, somebody from that crowd would go back to their home and get the ingredient that the monk was sure would make it taste better. And before long, what started out as an empty pot that a stone got placed in and some water got placed in became the most amazing meal that they'd had in some time. And every single person in that village that had gathered around that pot got some of that food. The way the legend goes is that they would bring their bowl up to the traveling monk. He'd put some of that stone soup in there and that they spent the entire afternoon having a wonderful time of food and fellowship. Now, the moral of the stone soup folktale is that there's a value in sharing and that there's a value in community. But in light of our scripture lesson today, I would like to make one additional observation about the stone stoop story. And that observation is this, that in order for a pot to be filled, the pot first had to be empty. In our gospel, in our uh, uh, Old Testament lectionary reading today, Genesis chapter 17, God has made this unbelievable, amazing promise to Abraham and Sarah. As Hannah shared in the children's story a little while ago, uh, God promised Abraham and Sarah that they would not just be biological parents, 
but that they would actually be the parents of many nations. It was a way of emphasizing the magnificence of God's promise that he made to them. And as amazing as that promise would have been to Abraham and Sarah, as eager as they would have been to hear about that promise, I want you to know that there would have also been at least a little bit of them that doubted whether or not that promise could ever come true. After all, as Hannah noted in the children's time, Abraham was 99 years old when this promise from God came to him, and Sarah's not much far behind him. They are well past the age when people were expected to be able to uh, conceive and bear children. Another thing that would have made it more difficult to believe is that Sarah herself had struggled with infertility for her entire life. She'd been trying for years and years and years to have a child, but had been unsuccessful in doing so. And this would have no doubt created a lot of pain in her heart. This would have no doubt left her feeling inadequate. And, and I want you to know that her pain and her inadequacy wouldn't just been self inflicted it would have also been inflicted on her by the community in which she lived during the time in which she lived because there were cultural and communal expectations and there were also cultural and communal implications about having a baby and, and, and the expectation was is that you needed to produce an heir, you, preferably a boy, so that your family line could continue. And, and, and the implications that were present in that day was is that for some reason you were unable to have children. That was typically uh, seen and viewed by the community as God's divine displeasure with you or some sort of divine disfavor upon you. So this pain and this inadequacy that she would have felt would have been not only self-inflicted, but she would have felt it from the larger community as well. In addition to the old age and in addition to the infertility, uh, one of the reasons why it might have been difficult for Abraham and Sarah to believe in the promise that it would actually come true is because of some of the decisions that Abraham and Sarah made some decisions that reflect some morally questionable calls, if you ask me. Think about the time when Abraham told Sarah two different occasions that she should act as his sister instead of his wife because Abraham wanted to benefit economically and wanted to be given greater status, and he was afraid that it wouldn't happen if they thought that Sarah was his wife. And so he told her to act like his sister instead. And when the people who were deceived by Abraham and Sarah's lie found out about it, they could have very easily decided to kill Sarah or to kill Abraham or to kill them both, which would threaten the promise that God had made to them before the promise had even had a chance to get off of the ground. And then, of course, there was that decision that Sarah arrives at when God doesn't respond and fulfill the promise as quickly as Sarah thought God should, and, and perhaps that God uh, isn't going to fulfill the promise in the way that, that 
Sarah thought that God would. She suggested that they take matters into their own hands. And she told Abraham, what you need to do is that you need to hook up with my servant, uh, Hagar, and the two of you can try to have a child, and that the child that you would bear between the two of you, maybe that's the promise that God would make. And I don't have time to tell you that whole story, but let me just say this. Uh, they prove that taking matters into your own hands and not waiting on the Lord in the way that the Lord uh, invited them to wait on him can have somewhat disastrous consequences. So their age, the fact that they were infertile, that some of the decisions that they made, uh, there are lots of reasons why it might have been difficult for them to believe or to trust that the promise of God was going to happen. And yet, despite all of those things, God's plan ultimately prevailed. And why? Well, Hannah said it. When God makes a promise, God keeps the promise. It doesn't matter what we do. When God makes a promise, God keeps the promise. And so when God chose Abraham and Sarah, and when God promised them that not only will you be biological parents, but you're going to be uh, parents of many nations. You're going to have children that outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. Uh, God made that promise not because of Abraham and Sarah's goodness. I want to suggest to you that God didn't look at Abraham and Sarah and make that promise because he was drawn to their goodness, God made that promise because he was drawn to their barrenness. If you'll allow me to borrow back from that story that I opened the sermon with this morning, God saw in Abraham and Sarah an empty pot that God could fill. And that's exactly what God did. God was drawn to their barrenness. So I'd like to ask you in the moments that we have left together as we are journeying through this season of Lent. It's a season of repentance where we confess our sin before God. It's a season of reflection when we examine our lives and, and, and who God is inviting or calling us to be. It's a season of preparation where we are trying to prepare ourselves for what happens on Easter Sunday morning. What does this story have to say to us? Well, one of the things that I couldn't help but think about as I was reading this story is that there may be people here this morning who for whatever reason feel like your pot is empty. There may be people here within the sound of my voice this morning that are experiencing a barrenness in your life that has absolutely nothing to do with conceiving a child. And I want you to know that God is drawn to your barrenness. 
that, that God sees in you an empty pot that God desires to fill with God's unbreakable love. It's a promise that God has made that is not dependent or conditional upon our God wants to love us. God wants to fill us with love. And if you have that empty spot, that empty pot, that barrenness in any phase of your life, the promise of God is that God wants to fill it. And if you don't have an empty pot right now, then you might want to praise the Lord something special when you get a chance to. But the reality is, is that there will come a day likely when you too will have an empty pot, a season of barrenness in your life. And I want you to know that God is drawn to it and that God wants to fill it with God's unbreakable love. Now, I don't have time to tell you all the ways that God might try to fill your broken, your barrenness or to fill your empty pot, but I, I do want to mention one this morning. I want to mention uh, community. Community is one of the ways that God fills empty pots, one of the ways that God fills in our brokenness. In the soup story that I told at the beginning today, when that, when that man, all he had was an empty pot, what did he do? He invited Others to come alongside him. And, and the other people that came alongside him, the community that gathered around him, they began to fill his pot. And ultimately, because they helped to fill that pot, there was enough for everybody. I want to suggest to you that that's exactly one of the ways, one of the primary ways that God will fill your empty pot. And if you are on this journey in Lent and you're feeling a sense of emptiness, a sense of barrenness, I would implore you to seek out community of faith so that your pot might be filled. I want to suggest to you that that every time somebody walks into one of our grief share meetings, every time that somebody walks into one of our uh, recovery community meetings, every time somebody walks into our Alzheimer's and dementia group, every time that somebody walks into one of our small groups, our Christian education classes, one of the things that almost always happens is that they begin to survey the room and they find that there are people there that are feeling what they're feeling or have felt what they're feeling. They find people that have been where they are or are where they are. And they find that in the context of that community, when you realize that you're not alone, when you're realizing that there is a group of people around you that can pour into your life and to help fill those empty spots with the unbreakable love of God, it does something amazing. And so, if I could implore you to do one thing during this season of Lent, is connect to a small group. Surround yourself with people that know what it's like to be where you are. And to allow that group to be the vessels through whom God will begin to fill your barrenness with the unbreakable love of God.